Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get an interview with those in the know inside of the music industry, entertainment, and life in general, and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a man who is responsible for discovering some of the biggest acts in the music industry. You may have heard of him, Baja Man, Andy Grammer, Hanson, the list goes on and on, was an exec head of A&R at Mercury, founder of S-Curve Records, and just recently launched a podcast that just wrapped up its first season, Speed of Sound. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, Mr. Steve Greenberg. Mr. Greenberg, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, and also Grammy Award winner. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yes, sir. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview with me. Happy to do it. Like I said, you have great podcasts, and I'm glad to be part of it. Yes, sir. So before getting into the music industry, did you have any other career aspirations or wanting to be a record man was always something you wanted to do? No, I, it was not anything I ever thought of doing. Uh, I always loved music and I was always like when I was in, you know, I always collected music and knew a lot about music and listened to the radio a lot. And when I was in college, I was a college DJ. Uh, but I never thought of being in the music business. I actually wanted to be an academic. I actually was working for my, towards my PhD and I, it was an applied communication research and I kind of just took a detour and wound up in the music business. I took a year off uh, to pay some debts and stuff and uh, I got a job in the music business because I had done my master's thesis about certain aspects of the pop music audience. And so I knew a little bit about the music business and also during the research for my master's thesis, I interviewed uh, a man who was the editor-in-chief of Billboard at the time. And so when I was looking for a, a job to make some money for a year, I called him up because I had interviewed him. And I said, hey, you know, do you know of any jobs in the music business? And he pointed me towards a job at Warner Music's International Division, writing press releases and artist bios. And I took the job. I thought I was just going to take it for a year and then go back to school and finish a Ph.D., uh, but I wound up staying so far for 33 years. Wow. So what were some of the radio stations that you grew up listening to as a kid? And I'm assuming this was back in the days when music was on AM and not FM. Well, both, both, both. I started out when I was little, you know, it was on, it was on AM. And there was, there, was, when, there was a station called WABC, which was the powerhouse station in New York, you know, the most listened to station in North America. And I used to listen to that when I was a little kid. But then you get a little older, like when I was about, 13 you start messing around with the fm dial and back in those days and there were some other top 40 stations that were on fm there was a station called 99x and they were a little bit more like i don't know kind of cool top 40 station then a little up the dial there was a station called wpix fm and they were the first station in new york to really go hard on disco in the earliest days of disco like 1974 before there was disco um overkill you know, when it was still like a little bit of an underground scene. And, and so that was kind of interesting to me. And then there was this station that came on around that time that was really important for my knowledge, to build my knowledge base in the history of pop music, which was a station called WCBS-FM. And they were an oldie station. And so they played stuff all the way from like the beginning of the rock era in the mid-50s, all the way through the 60s and even up to the early 70s. And so like, I listened to that sometimes too. I'd flip back and forth, you know, and I would, I really learned like so many records that were sort of before my time, I learned by listening to the oldie station in New York. 
And then I started uh, listening to some of the R&B stations. There was one on AM called WWRL Super 16, which was like a very hype kind of station, like high energy DJs and stuff. It was kind of like the R&B equivalent of WABC. But then I flipped over to FM and there was a station called WBLS. And that was, again, a little bit more of like a cool uh, R&B station for a little bit of probably older crowd than what WRL was getting. And so that's how I really got into uh, R&B music. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't Cousin Brucey on WABC? He was. He was on every uh, day from 6 6 p.m. to 10. No, from sorry. Yeah, from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Yeah, he was like the nighttime DJ. So back in those days on those AM stations, the guy who was on from like 6 to 10 was the guy who had the most youth appeal because that was the time that all the kids would listen to the radio while doing their homework. Right. So you wanted somebody who like appealed to the teenagers. So that was Cousin Brucey. And they had different guys at different parts of the day that sort of like, you know, we kind of aim more towards the audience that they thought they had at that time of day. Mm, and like yourself, I cut my teeth in college radio. And back in the early days of radio, used to have live bodies in for every shift. And the overnight jobs were just as good as your morning, afternoon, or midday drive jobs. Oh, absolutely. And where'd you go to college? University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Huh? So yeah, no, I, I did college radio and I, my, my, my best show on college radio was on from midnight to three on Tuesday nights. And in the college I went to like on Wednesdays for whatever reason, that was like the day that most students didn't have class. Like most classes were like Monday and Thursday or Tuesday and Friday and Wednesday, most people didn't have any class. So like people stayed up late on Tuesday nights. So I, so I was on from midnight to three, which turned out to be like the perfect time to be on the radio because everybody was awake and they were all in their dorm rooms and they were doing whatever they were doing. But a lot of people had the radio on. And it, was, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, my first show was on from 12 to 2 a.m. early Saturday mornings and then progressed as I got further in classification. But the wattage wasn't as big. We only were 18 watts. So if you were around campus, you would hear it. But thankfully for live streaming, I was able to get international audiences and beyond the Greenboro. I was before the streaming days. And so we just had people around the campus, basically. And pairing up flyers saying, hey, tune in and record your commercials and on cards and had your blooper reel and probably got played at a college Christmas party and everything like that, all those, all that good stuff. Then, then when I was in grad school, I was on a station out in uh, Palo Alto, California, college station. And that had a much bigger range. Like you could hear that station like all the way up in Oakland and stuff and all the way down in San Jose. That was a powerful station. And, and on that station, I had a, a show where I just played uh, R&B oldies. Wow. And that was, I did that in the mid 80s. So it really was like everything from like the late 50s through the, you know, through the 70s really like an R&B oldies. And that was a lot of fun. Mm. And what I noticed too about radio during those days were that they used to have these hit music surveys where they would have, let's say, their top 20, 30, 40, or whatever predetermined number by the station, your top charts each week, and they had a picture of a jock and their time slot, and you're like, okay, this is the number one record this week. Be sure to listen to WXYZ to be the winner in the last contest, which was a famous promo that was ran by, I think it was KCBQ out of San Diego. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. All the stations have these little surveys and they would uh, put the surveys in the record stores. You go to the local record store and you pick up the local station survey. So on one hand, it helped you figure out like which singles you wanted to buy. And then on the other hand, it advertised the station. So mm-hmm. they, they, we, we had a lot and you, you can go online right now and you can see a lot of those old surveys too. 
mm. um, which is pretty cool. You can find a lot of them. Uh, and you, what's great about those old surveys is that, especially for the local stations, there were a lot of records that didn't hit nationally. They were just local hits. And especially like those ones that are down in the lower end of the survey, like number 20, number 30, in a certain city, right? A lot of those records are really lost records. Like they're records that most people just don't know. And it's a lot of fun just looking through those old surveys. To this day, you go find one of those old surveys and you find some records that are number 25 in St. Louis or something. And you go, I've never heard of that record. And then you go look for it. And luckily, like on YouTube these days, you know, I, I find that most everything can be found on YouTube. And you can find some records that you just never heard of and it really increases your knowledge. Yeah, the regional records were like the hidden jewels of the industry because I didn't know this until I watched this documentary on a little label out of Miami called Deep City Records that the late Betty Wright, she did a record called Hypnotize and she was discovered after winning a contest and going to pick up a record at a record store. Somebody overheard her singing, hey, let's cut a record on you. She was 14. It was a regional hit and that led to her big career, which came after that. Oh, yeah. And her first hit, she was very young as well. I mean, she, was, she did uh, Girls Can't Do What the Guys Do. And I think she was still 14 when she did that one as well. She tells a great story. Now, I, knew, I knew Betty very well. I worked with her for many, many years. And she tells a great story about how she had that hit with Girls Can't Do What the Guys Do. And her teacher in uh, middle school wouldn't let her take a day off to go be on American Bandstand. So she never got to perform on American Bandstand when she had Girls can't do what the guys do. But later on, she came out uh, with Clean Up Woman, and she got to do every TV show. She was a little bit older then. Right. And Girls Can't Do What the Guys Do, Beyonce later sampled that for Upgrade You. And then, of course, Tonight's Tonight's been sampled plenty of times by rappers and R&B artists. And most notably, when I Want to Sex You Up by Color Me Bad became a big hit. This was right around the time before samples started getting cleared. And you had to hope that they didn't catch it, where she was suing, saying, hey, y'all going to pay me because your record exploded and you're using my sample. Oh, yeah, she did. She uh, she did really well over the years on uh, people sampling her music. And and sometimes it wasn't even just samples. You know, like I look at a record like do Op that thing by Lauryn Hill. And there's a real uh, influence in that record of from Girls Can't Do What the Guys Do, even though it's not a sample. But yeah. you, you can you could see you could see where she was inspired by that record. Right, because when because when I hear do up that thing, to me it's very reminiscent of Carol King era tapestry and Laura Nairo. And I think David Geffen, who was at Asylum at the time, was her manager, correct? Before he went on to form Geffen. It was Laura Nairo's manager, Laura Nairo. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a great record. So you mentioned your early career, you got started doing press releases. So did you always have that plan of like, man, I want to be stuck writing press releases. I want to be able to get in that front office and learn how to make hit records or how to sign the artists that can make those hit records. No, because like I thought I was just taking a year off from graduate school, right? So I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to go back to graduate school after a year. But then what happened was, um, WIA International, that was what the company was called. It was, WIA stood for Warner Electra Atlantic. And WIA International got this new guy in who became the new head of international A&R and marketing for the company. And he, uh, we met and we really hit it off and he knew a lot about music and he liked that I knew a lot about music. And he offered me this job. He said, don't go back to school. 
I'll give you this job being my eyes and ears around the world. And you could travel the world and uh, just do all kinds of research missions for, for the company. And in fact, you could, you know, you don't even have to have an apartment because you could put your stuff in storage and save money on rent because you're just going to be on the road all the time. And I was in my mid twenties. That was very appealing. You know, like who wouldn't want to just travel the world on somebody else's tab. Right. So I spent the next couple of years, you know, spending a lot of time in England, a lot of time in Germany, Japan. I was all over the place, to be honest. Uh, and I would just basically go and, and figure stuff out for we international. Like they would want to, let's say, get into the classical music market in Norway. So they'd say, hey, you go go to Norway and figure out like how does the classical music world work in Norway, you know, and then come back and let us know. Or we want to get into the the um, home video, home music video business in Japan. You know, go down, go over there and check out the home, you know, the, the music video business and come back and explain. It was a time of great expansion in the music business because there was a lot of money coming into the music business because of the CD. You know, the, when the CD was introduced, it was boom times in the music business, right? Everyone was repurchasing their old catalogs on CD and people were buying a lot of new music on CD and CDs of course were a lot more expensive than vinyl. So there was just tons of money in the music business. So the big companies were all investing that money in expansion. So, you know, the Warner Music Group had never been in classical before, but they got into classical in that period. They bought CD pressing plants, you know, that exi you know, existing ones, like in different countries to have local pressing plants. Uh, they got into music video. They got into all kinds of stuff. But for me, most notably in that period, I kind of wrangled um, a role in We International where I would also uh, be in charge of the back catalog and putting out back catalog reissues around the world. And so I did a lot of great uh, projects in that period where I would just do a lot of historical records. And they didn't even come out in the US, these records. They, they came out in, in Europe and in Japan and you know, wherever, uh, in Asia. But uh, I had a lot of fun with them. I, I, I did, I looked at a lot of different types of music. Like I had a history of funk record and I had a history of disco record and a history of gospel influence, soul music. I even did a record. I did one record at one point called um, uh, Sonny and Cher, their greatest hits alone and together, which was really a great record. Um, so I got to do all this kind of back catalog stuff, but none of it ever came out in the US. And then I did this box set of uh, every record that had ever come out on the Stax records label called the Complete Stax Volt Singles 1959 to 1968. And it was a nine CD box set, which to that point was the biggest box set of, uh, of CDs ever put out until then. And it, came, it was coming out and kind of word leaked out that this record was gonna come out in Europe and in Japan and the people at Atlantic Records in the U.S. who had the U.S. rights to the Stax label said, oh, we want to put this out too. So it actually wound up coming out all over the world, including the U.S. And it actually was certified gold in the U.S., which is pretty amazing for a nine CD box set. And that's actually how I got into the U.S. record business, to be honest. I got a lot of notoriety for doing that box set because it was so crazy to do something that big. And that led to me getting my first A&R job which was as head of A&R of Big Beat Records, which was a dance-oriented label that was uh, owned by Atlantic. Yeah, and you mentioned Stacks, funny, because my wife and I, we took a vacation to Memphis last year, and I had a chance to go visit Stacks, and for me to be 
me being a music head, you know, to see the history in there, to see Isaac Hayes' car, the Oscar from Shaft, and all of the other artifacts, I was just like, oh, you could just say, oh, leave me in Memphis. Forget the barbecue. Mm -hmm. Leave me in Memphis. And then also, I had a chance to see Al Green while I was there, went to go to his church. And he was actually preaching that particular Sunday because some members were telling me, you call called him on the right Sunday because he's hardly ever here. So to be three feet away and to hear him sing and to say, man, I grew up listening to you and trying your hardest not to fan out, take a picture and be respectful. You know, it was just cool just to have that experience to see him up close and in the flesh and seeing stacks in the history that it played not only on R&B, but pop music. And it's just as important to the landscape of American music as Motown. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, that was a, it was a great thing to be involved with that Stax project that I told you about because I got to meet a lot of the legendary artists. You know, I got to meet Rufus Thomas, who was an incredible uh, performer whose career, you know, spanned all the way back to the 1930s. And I got to meet Booker T and the MGs and uh, Sam, Sam Moore of Sam and Dave and Eddie Floyd, and Carla Thomas and all kinds of people. And it was, it was just a great great time and a great thing to have been involved with. And I'm still, I'm still, I'm still sometimes, you know, doing some little things here and there that are tangentially related to the Stax catalog. Like last year, I wrote the liner notes for a, a box set that looked at the Stax record label in the year 1968, which was a very tumultuous year in Memphis. Of course, it was the year that Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis, not far from the Stax studios. And so the box set really looked at what you know, what, what was the impact of all the crazy things that happened in 1968 on that label, on Stax Records, and how did they survive all the challenges that emerged during that year? And I wrote the uh, liner notes for that, and that was, and again, it was good for me to get back in touch with all the Stax people, and I went back and did new interviews with a lot of the people, Steve Cropper, Jim Stewart, Al Bell. Wow. That was pretty great. Wow. And you mentioned disco, and disco for some people is a dirty word, but it made labels a lot of money, money, primarily the majors and also Casablanca Records, which is ran by Neil Bogart. And why do you think disco in the music industry was kind of love-hate and then you had the backlash at Kaminsky Park with Steve Dahl and WLUP and the whole disco sucks movement? The problem that disco had is it just got too big. And so it became very ubiquitous. And when something gets that big, you know, and, that popular, there's a little bit of a gold rush mentality in the music business and everyone jumps in. And when people jump in that heavy, inevitably there's a lot of bad records that come out, right? So I think that the best of disco was really good and it was a very cool underground scene that came out of New York. And you know, the, the early, those early records were great, but then it just got really, really crazy big and it started to become ubiquitous. And when I think when Saturday Night Fever came out, which was about three years, after disco first emerged nationally as a force on the radio. When Saturday Night Fever came out, it just started to become like every suburban person, you know, would go to their local suburban disco in a strip mall. And it became sort of not as cool as those original underground clubs in New York City. And I think that it just started to like, you know, become very lowest common denominator kind of culture. It also represented in some ways the worst excesses of the 70s, you know, the drug culture and the kind of superficiality. And so 
by like early 1979, when um, the majors had plowed all this money into disco after Saturday Night Fever's success, trying to capitalize on that, it turned out that like, you know, there was just endless disco on the radio. There were all these stations that changed their format to all disco all the time. And that meant that the charts were just loaded up with disco records. And so you had weeks in 1979, you know, where there were like seven or eight disco records in the top 10. And for people who weren't in love with that stuff, it was too much. And even for people who liked disco, a lot of it just wasn't that good anymore because there was just too much of it, you know? So the disco sucks thing started to happen. And of course the disco sucks thing, you know, in many ways was fueled by racism and homophobia. You know, I think it was, it was you know, not so different than, than some of the things we see going on in America today. There was this, you know, group of, you know, kind of white men in the heartland who thought that the culture was being usurped by African-Americans and by gay people and by women, because so many of the biggest artists in disco were women. And they didn't like that. They thought that, you know, rock, which was more of like a masculine white thing, you know, was, was under siege and they had to fight back for rock, you know. So the disco sucks thing uh, was a revolt against a certain kind of music, but really underneath it was much, much more sinister than that, because it was really like this attempt by a certain group of people to kind of take the culture back from groups that they felt had taken it away from them. And so they rioted, you know, there was a riot in Comiskey Park in the summer of 1979, where they, a local DJ announced this event where they were gonna blow up disco records in the outfield between games of a White Sox doubleheader. And they did that. And then the, audience, the crowd and the, the crowd in the stadium, which was not a baseball crowd. It was really like a crowd who had come to see the records blown up. Uh, they rioted and you know, destroyed the field. And incredibly, it somehow worked in the sense that disco started to become uncool. Like, like I always say that it was like an attempted coup against disco, but the, two, the coup actually succeeded because even though there was still dance music being made for many years after that, until this day, of course, there's dance music being made, disco music was never again like at the center of the culture the way it was until that moment yeah because sesame street i mean they put out a disco record then you had rick d's and disco duck and it like you said it became overprocessed, like mcdonald's where everybody had a disco record even the rolling stones put out a disco record i think kiss put out a disco record so people had to hop on the bandwagon Everybody, Barbara Streisand, Paul McCartney, Rod Stewart, Cher, like Kiss, anybody, they all did, everybody did disco records. Everyone was jumping on the bandwagon. They said, oh yeah, he went disco. That would be the way that they would refer to it back then. And, you know, it was, it was just overkill. Now at this time, there was a network that was starting to form it was owned by Warner Amec, which was combined between Warner Communications and American Express. They had a show on Nickelodeon called Pop Clips, which was hosted by the late Jack. Take me to your leader, Armstrong. And it served as the test ground for a network that will launch on August 1st, 1981, known as MTV. Now, why did you think the industry, when MTV first launched, was very hesitant to produce videos, but over in the UK, they had videos galore because they had to do that for when they couldn't make an appearance on Top of the Pops. That's right. So that, that meant is that it gave an advantage to British artists for a couple of years. So when MTV first got on the air in August 1981, as you said, 
it wasn't on in the biggest cities. It wasn't on in New York and it wasn't on in LA. It was on in a lot of like smaller markets around the country. But what suddenly started to happen was in those small markets, all these records that MTV was playing because the videos existed because they were British, those records started to like sell a lot in the local record stores. And all of a sudden you had records like Tainted Love by Soft Cell and Don't You Want Me by The Human League. And they were selling in these small markets uh, in the Midwest and in the South and in, in, you know, all over the place, you know, in Salt Lake City and in, you know, Omaha and stuff. And so it was clear that there was a real power associated with MTV and getting played on MTV. And then in September of 1982, MTV went on the air in New York and LA. And that's when it really went into overdrive because all of a sudden they just had the power to make hits. So all of a sudden you had these artists like Flock of Seagulls and Adam Ant, you know, and, and so many Haircut 100 and, you know, so many, so many artists, Tony Basil, you know, all these artists, Duran Duran, you know, who had videos because they were coming out of England uh, and they just suddenly took over the American charts. Mm-hmm. And it took a while for America to catch up and for American artists to realize, oh, I better make videos if I want to, compete you know an artist like Bruce Springsteen didn't make his first real music video until 1984 but that's when he became a like a bigger superstar than he ever was because he jumped in uh and uh you know MTV really MTV came out at a weird time you know because the early 80s were a time when because of the anti-disco backlash there wasn't that much black music on pop radio it was a time when records by African-American artists had very little presence at the top of the pop charts, um, like remarkably little actually. And MTV came out right in the middle of that period. So the people who ran MTV, like there was not very much uh, R&B music on pop radio at that time. So the people who like ran MTV kind of mimicked what was going on in the culture. Instead of thinking, hey, we could actually change the culture let's do something different. They just kind of mimicked it. And they didn't play um, R&B, soul music, however you want to describe it, black music videos at all in the early days of MTV. And all they, all that meant was that they really exacerbated that trend where there wasn't very much music by African-American artists at the top of the pop charts. Uh, but then, at, in late 1982, Michael Jackson's Thriller album came out. Now, Michael Jackson's Thriller, you know, the people at Michael Jackson's label, Epic Records, which was part of CBS Record Group, they were very scared, you know, to put out Thriller because, I mean, they obviously were going to put it out, but they were scared about its prospects because they knew that uh, music by Black artists wasn't getting a lot of play on pop radio. So significantly, the first single for Michael Jackson's Thriller was a duet with Paul McCartney because they thought, oh, if we have Paul McCartney on the record, you know, we can get on pop radio. And so they had a record called The Girl Is Mine, which is probably one of the weaker things on the Thriller album. And it didn't even have a video, The Girl Is Mine, because again, they how are we going to get on MTV with a, you know, R&B record? So that happened. But then, of course, Michael Jackson then comes out with the real good stuff from Thriller, like Billie Jean and Beat It. And he makes those videos. And his label goes to MTV and they want to get those songs on the, on the channel because they know that they need to be on MTV if they're going to be at the center of the culture. And MTV at first puts, puts up a fight, you know, doesn't want to play, we don't play that kind of music on MTV. But then uh, CBS 
music group says, hey, we're not going to give you any of our artists' videos if you don't play these. And so MTV plays Michael Jackson's videos, and it turns out to be the best thing they ever did because all of a sudden, MTV is the home to these incredible videos that you really can't see anywhere else with any regularity. And like Mike, you know, this is like an amazing form of entertainment by an incredible entertainer and it's on MTV. So what happened was MTV made Michael Jackson much bigger and Michael Jackson at the same time made MTV much bigger. And that actually helped bring black music back onto pop music pop radio so that by the by the end of 1983 there was not a problem anymore the, the the airwaves were much more integrated by the middle of 1983 than they were in the middle of 1982 yeah you definitely confirmed to me about what walter yetnikoff did when calling mtv said i'm gonna pull the whole library off unless you play this and then i had a chance to interview nina blackwood and she was saying in regards to that was that mtv was formatting themselves kind of like aor or top 40 wasn't really thinking about r&b and then when david bowie got interviewed on mtv and was grilling mark goodman about why there's no r&b representation and that kind of led to them saying we need to change our strategy and like you said michael jackson broke through then prince came in eddie grant got played but he wasn't traditionally r&b he was reggae mm -hmm. Yeah, Prince is a fun is a funny example. You know, I'll I'll, I'll tell you something about, about that's interesting about Prince. You know, Prince' song "1999" came out uh, in 1982, and it was a big R&B hit, but it was not a big pop hit at all. And then after MTV started playing videos by African American artists after Thriller, Prince came out with a song called "Little Red Corvette." And MTV played that video because now they're playing black videos and that became a massive hit. So Prince's label, Warner Brothers Records says, hey, we better like re-release 1999 because now you can get on MTV with this kind of record, you know? So they re-released 1989, no, sorry, 1999 in the middle of 1983. And it becomes a big pop hit, even though it failed to be a big pop hit the first time around. But of course, it had already been a really big R&B hit the year before, so it wasn't a big R&B hit again. So 1999 has a funny life, or actually two lives, right? In 1982, it was a massive R&B hit that didn't hit on the pop chart, and in 1983, it was a massive pop hit that didn't hit on the R&B chart. Amazing, because I went back and listened to Prince's catalog from the For You album, then up to Sign of the Times, and you could kind of hear, once you hit 1999, he knew the direction he wanted to go sound-wise in order to get that pop crossover exposure, and then it went into overdrive with Purple Rain. And then with Michael Jackson, I personally felt Off the Wall was a better album than Thriller, and he purposely made Off the Wall, from what I've read in old interviews was because Off the Wall was only nominated in the R&B or at the time it was called Soul categories. And he was like, I'm going to make an album that's going to appeal to the pop market. Yeah, I mean, but, but Off the Wall was a pretty big pop record. I mean, Off the Wall had four, four, four top 10 records on the pop chart, including two number ones. So it was a pretty big pop record. So I don't know. I mean, if he didn't think that was big enough and he wanted to aim for bigger pop success, well, I will say he, he succeeded. <laughs> Now, what was your take on, at this same time, we have Michael, we have Prince, Madonna, 
Wham was starting to break through stateside. Then we have this little genre that is emerging in the undergrounds in New York, hip hop. So what was your take on when you first heard rap and did you think that it would go the way of disco or did you think that it would have staying power? You know, when I first heard Rapper's Delight in the fall of 1979, I was just stunned by the record. I just couldn't believe that such a record existed. I was fascinated by it. I immediately ran out and bought it. And, but I didn't know, I'll be honest, I, it was not clear to me that there would be another one, you know, after Rapper's Delight. And now, of course, all of a sudden there was another one, you know, Sugar Hill um, had a couple more hits right after that. And then Curtis Blow had Christmas rapping and a couple other things in the breaks. And so it was clear that there were like more of these records, you know, not beyond just Rapper's Delight. And I don't think that I thought far enough down the line to think whether this is going to be a lasting genre of music or whether it's just an interesting thing that some people are doing at the moment. But I did find it really fascinating. And I bought a lot of the early records. I bought Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel on 12 inch when it came out and was pretty blown away by that record. Uh, there was a great record that was called um, Sugar Hill's Greatest Hits that came out in around, I guess, 1981. And it had like all the original Sugar Hill records uh, to that point. And like, you know, that pretty much if you had that record, you had like 90% of the records, the 90% of the rap records that had actually hit on the radio. And so I, I had all those records, but I don't, I don't think I thought too much about whether, whether it was going to last. What I will say is that rap got to um, form as a recorded music form, not because of course it had been a live music form for years in the South Bronx before Rappers Delight, but as a recorded form, it got to kind of like be under the radar for a few years. And part of that was because it was brand new and people didn't know quite what to make of it. But also part of it was because there was not that much potential of pop success for, uh, R&B based records in that period of the early 80s. And so instead of trying to make records that could appeal to the masses, I think those early hip hop labels just said, we're just gonna make records uh, for the African-American community largely because we the, the prospects of crossover aren't that great. And so in some ways it was able to just be kind of under the radar and stay very pure for a long time before it started to realize that there was a real possibility of massive commercial success. You know, like the first, Ironically, like oddly enough, when the first rap record, and I'm going to put rap in quotations there, first rap record that really hit big was Rapture by Blondie, you know, and that was, of course, really a pop record by a rock band. Uh, but in all fairness to Blondie, they genuinely liked rap and they genuinely respected those early rappers. You know, they mentioned Fab Five Freddy in the, in the lyrics. They mentioned Grandmaster Flash in the lyrics. Like they, they're trying to do the right thing, even though it's kind of weird that the first big top 10 rap record, it was number one actually, um, is by this white rock band. Mm -hmm. And they brought Funky Four Plus One More to perform when Blondie hosted Saturday Night Live, which was huge, a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was the first time that most of America had ever seen a rap group perform. You know, mm. so that, is that very, I remember I saw Grandmaster Flash and the uh, Furious Five in 1982 uh, at a club in New York. And even then, I'll tell you what's funny, I felt like I had seen them too late and they had already gotten big, you know, they had already become pop. It was already, it was, this was after the message, 
the message of course was a massive record you know and so like I, I saw them and I thought, oh, I would have loved to have seen them when it was all, like, when, when it was the real thing, you know, before it all got to, so big. But that was 1982, so maybe that was pretty early. Yeah, and you mentioned a lot of the mom and pop record labels that put out those early rap records like Sugar Hill Records, Rest in Peace, Celia Robinson, B. Head, Enjoy, yeah, Profile, Select, Sleeping Bag. But then comes two men, one out of this NYU dorm room, another one was promoting parties in and around New York. They said, we want to take this underground art form and make it global. And that was Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons with Def Jam. Yeah, Russell Simmons, of course, got his start managing uh, Curtis Blow and then promoting parties in Queens. And so he was like the real, he was there at the very beginning, you know, like you have to give him credit. Like he, he was there at the beginning. He understood the whole rap culture as well as anybody and he understood how to take it and make it and make it global as you said right and obviously when 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 run dmc came out you know you sense that rap was changing that that early party record rap thing that sugar hill did so well that that kind of music was starting to become dated and that rap was going to go into some new directions right and the one thing i found interesting about rick rubin was he he knew both the rock and the rap world, and he had the foresight to tell Run DMC, you're just not gonna sample the guitars and the drums from Walk This Way off of Aerosmith's Toys in the Attic album. We are gonna remake this record. And the record gave Aerosmith a second shot in the arm and revived their career, because I think they were on the down slope at that point. Oh yeah, Aerosmith hadn't had a hit in years at that point by the time Walk This Way happened. I mean, Walk This Way was as important for Aerosmith as it was for Run DMC, for sure. But really, Walk This Way was really the first real rap record, you know, rap, real group record by a rap artist, a real rap artist, to go top 10. You know, there have been all kinds of weird things that, that you know, around. look, there were records that seemed rap-ish, you know, that kind of got some exposure, you know, like a record like Double Dutch Bus in 1981 seemed like it could sort of be related to rap. You know, and was pretty big record, uh, but it wasn't real, right? It was kind of a fun, not like a novelty record. Um, but Run DMC was the first time you had people who were really credible in the rap world who had a top 10 record on the pop chart. Mm. Now, being an A&R, how do you know an act has staying power or if they're just trying to chase the money train? And what were the ingredients that you used to say, I'm going to sign you to a deal or pass? Well, I think that I always look for artists who, who are unique, who have a unique sound. I don't want somebody who sounds just like the thing that's on the radio today. You know, I'm not looking for the next Ariana Grande or something like that. You know, I want somebody who's doing something a little different. Like, so the trick is to try to find somebody who's unique. But, and when somebody's unique, it's a little hard. You know, like if you sound the same as everybody else, in some ways it's easier to get in the door, right? If you sound a little different, sometimes there are some barriers, but if you can get through those barriers, those are the people who could be really big. So I always like people who have a unique sound, but I believe when I hear them, I believe, okay, if somehow we could figure out how to get the world to hear this, it's gonna be the biggest thing in the world. Even though it might be a little bit of a challenge to get the world to hear it, it's worth it. Cause if we can get, get over the, that hump, we could have the biggest thing in the world. And so like when I did Hanson in the nineties, it was like that. I thought like, okay, you know, that kind of music is not on the radio right now, but if we somehow could get it on the radio, it's going to be the biggest thing in the world. And it was, 
later on, I, I signed a singer named Joss Stone from England. And she was a, like a 14-year-old soul singer, had an amazing voice. And, you know, she never had a hit single in her life. But she sold 8 million albums on her first two albums because those albums were so good. So we didn't ever really get on the radio, but people just loved her, her voice and bought those records um, and appreciated what she was doing, even though it was so different. And then later on, you know, I, 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 I currently I work with a band called AJR and they don't sound like anything else either. And, and at first, you know, we had a lot of trouble figuring out where they would even fit in on the radio. And then eventually they started to have hit after hit after hit on alternative radio. Uh, even though that wasn't like the place where they started, but that's where they really found a home. So, you know, I, like I said, I like, I like artists that are, that have a unique sound, but who I can imagine being massive if the world actually got to hear them. Right. And you mentioned that you got your start over at Big Beat. Who are some of the artists that you had a chance to sign while you were over at Big Beat? Oh, at Big Beat, uh, Robin S was probably one of the biggest ones. She had a song called Show Me Love. And then we also had um, Inner Circle did uh, Bad Boys and Sweat. Wow. So those were the biggest things at the time that I was the head of a and Big Beat. Um, those two records, you know, were, were the biggest ones. And they were big. They were both top 10 records, you know. And uh, of course, Bad Boys was the theme song on Cops, the TV show Cops for many years. Right. And, and Robin S is still, Robin S is still one of, Show Me Love by Robin S is still one of the great dance records of that period. Right, and a little bit of trivia for some of you that may not know, uh, Michael Sterling was a member of Inner Circle at this time. I think he was an uh, instrumentalist in the group. So I bring this up because he had a record when he put out an R&B record called Lovers and Friends back in 1990. And that was sampled by Little John and Usher and Ludacris off of the song of the same name, off the 2004 album Crunk Juice, a little bit of FYI. So what led you to go from Big B and hop over to Mercury? Well, actually, I went from Big Beat to Atlantic. Atlantic owned Big Beat. And so they moved me over to Atlantic at one point. Um, and then the guy who brought me over to Atlantic left the label. And so I sort of lost my guy, you know, my, you know, my mentor, the person yeah. who like was invested in me actually getting to sign records and make records. And so I left Atlantic and because just, there was no way I could really get anything done there because I didn't have a, a, a powerful person at the label who really was invested in, in me making records. And uh, about a year after that, the guy who had, be, who had uh, been the head of Atlantic became the head of Mercury. He, you know, he had left Atlantic. He actually went to Warner Brothers briefly. And then uh, wound up at Mercury and he called me up and said, oh, I want to make you head of a and Mercury. I said, great. And so I went over to Mercury and really within about a month or two of being at Mercury, I signed Hanson. And we kind of, you know, kind of changed the direction of pop a little bit because that, that period was very much like dominated by alternative music. Uh, and we kind of sensed that it was starting to run its course and run out of creative energy. And so I really felt that there was a space in the culture for pop to come back. Right. And music that was really optimistic and upbeat and colorful and kind of spoke to the, you know, the happiness that I felt that teenagers kind of wanted, that that music could come back. And luckily I wasn't the only one who thought that because, you know, if you're the only one, you might just fail. But if it, but, and there's strength in numbers. So at the same time, I was thinking that 
um, over in England, the people behind the Spice Girls were thinking the same thing. And they, Spice Girls hit, and as soon as the Spice Girls hit in America, I knew, oh, if this, if this could get on the radio, I know Hanson can get on the radio. Right. So we knew we to have a hit. And, and then it, it, that just led to a whole renaissance of pop, because then out of, out of that came the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney and all that. And it just, all of a sudden, the, the whole uh, yeah. landscape of yeah, you're taking me back to my teen years. I remember being in uh, middle school, early high school when that whole era hit. And I don't know if you can confirm if this was true of this urban legend, because I had heard that Mercury wanted to sign Backstreet Boys, but John Mellencamp was like, no, don't sign these guys because these guys are pure pop and that's not me. And that's how they got to go over to John. Is that true or not? Yeah, yeah. They, they, Mercury was going to sign the Backstreet Boys and they passed because John Mellencamp was upset. He felt like this is manufactured pop. I don't want to be on a label that makes manufactured pop and I'm going to leave the label, you know, if you if you'd sign this. So they didn't sign it. And in a way, I look, I, look, I look at that and I think, well, that's a good thing in a weird way because if they'd already had the Backstreet Boys, I'm not sure there would have been room for Hanson. Right. You know, when I got there a couple right. of years later. And so in a way, like, you know, the fact that, that, they did, that they didn't sign to Mercury turned out to be good for me, really, because I got to sign Hanson to Mercury. And it probably was good for Hanson, too. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the Spice Girls breaking in the U.S. after having huge success in the U.K. But I want to mention one of the big boy groups over in the U.K. They were the U.K.'s equivalent to New Kids on the Block, and they were inspired to get put together like New Kids on the Block. Why did you think Take That didn't really take off here in America It only had one hit with Back For Good? First of all, Back For Good is one of the great singles of the night. Gary Barlow, great writer. Amazing record, amazing record. But uh, I think the bad timing, I think that the Backstreet, sorry, I'm sorry, I think that Take That came out in that period when alternative music had really taken over pop and there was just no room on the radio for that kind of sound, which is a shame because they were they were a good group and they had real people. And I mean, Robbie Williams was in Take That. Like they had some real stars in that group. There was another group um, over in England at that time called Boyzone. Oh Boyzone yeah, also- Stephen Gately, Ronan Keaton, no yeah. matter what. Yeah. I worked with them for a while at Mercury. And I think that the timing wasn't right. Like sometimes you could be a little too early. They Those guys came in that period between new kids and the Spice Girls when nobody wanted to hear about pop. People wanted to hear about alternative, cred, rock, you right. know, onks. Right. Um, I, think, I think that they just didn't have the right time. But, but Back For Good was such a great song that it couldn't even be denied. So, yeah, and Shane Lynch yeah. of Boyzone, his sisters were in a girl group that had moderate success here in the States, Bewitched, Say La Vie. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. I, I, well, I, work, I said I worked with, I worked with uh, Boyzone, so I, I knew Shane. I knew Ronan and Steven and all those guys. Um, you know, really, it was really Ronan and Steven who sang in the group. They were a funny group because really, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school so many years later, but really most of the guys in that band didn't even sing. And that was put together by Louis Walsh, who later went on to put together Westlife, correct? Absolutely. And then he also became like a big judge on all the uh, your, the English equivalents of like you know x factor and the pop idol and all that kind of stuff he became a big 
a big personality off of that right. stuff. Now, when you first heard Hanson's demo, did you know right away that they had star power or they needed a little bit more polish? Well, I knew that he had an amazing voice, Taylor Hanson. That was the first thing that struck me, how good his voice was, you know. Um, because I remembered those, you know, records like Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5 and the Osmonds and that kind of stuff. And he had that kind of voice, you know. And I thought that the song was a really good song on Bob. And they had written that themselves, right? So any group of kids who could write something that good, who have a lead singer that's that good, I want to find out more about them. I wasn't sure that they would be stars. I wanted, you know, I wanted to meet them. I wanted to make sure, first of all, when I met them, can he really sing that good? Or is this tape being manipulated or something, right? And I wanted to make sure, can they really play their instruments or is this fake? And maybe did they even really write the song or did like somebody who they know in Tulsa write it, you know? So I met them, I became convinced that it was all absolutely legitimate and real. And so I totally was excited about signing them. Wow, and it proved to be successful. Umbop, big record, middle of nowhere, huge album. To me, the standout cut off of that album was not a single; it was an album cut, yearbook. That was my oh, one yeah. of my favorite records off Middle of Nowhere. That wasn't a single. Yeah, a, fab a fabulous record. It's kind of got a mystery at its heart, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that that's a really great sort of you know teen drama kind of song and we just never got around to making that a single but we certainly could have i mean it was a great song You're, you have good taste that was a good song yeah umbop like to explode everywhere but like you said at the same time bashy boys and nsync were starting to break here in america after putting in work overseas and building credit over there so how did the marketing of hansen go to where we want them to be respected as musicians but know that they're not in the same lane like bashy boys and nsync because that's two totally different lanes well, they very much did not want to be in the same lane as the Backstreet Boys at NSYNC. They, they considered those bands back then to be what they would call, they used to call them puppets. They said, those guys are puppets. You know, uh, so back then, you know, they were young guys. Remember, they, you know, Hanson were like, they were, one of them was like 12 and one was 14 and one was 16. You know, they, they were young guys. So they had kind of fixed ideas the way that somebody that age would, would have. And they just decided that, Backstreet Boys and, and Boyzone even, you know, that all those guys were just not worth anything and they were puppets. And Hanson really took their craft very seriously. They played their own instruments and they wanted to become really good on their instruments. And for Hanson guys, ultimately it was far more important to go out and tour and become an amazing live band. That was more important to them than making another record and trying to have another pop hit. So they actually went away for a while. Hanson put out their first album in 1997. They didn't put out their second studio album until 2000. That's a lifetime in teen pop. You know, that's like if you're in uh, 10th grade in when the first record came out, you're in college by the time the second record came out, you know. And so uh, they just abdicated their place in the teen pop universe on purpose. They didn't want to be teen pop artists. Right, because I looked at them as they were the age range, but musically they weren't teen pop. And when I interviewed Donna Wright, she was telling me about how you mentioned in your part two about the teen pop special on your podcast, Speed of Sound, which you can find on all major platforms that they passed on doing their Disney special because they're like, Disney, why are we playing for 
tweens and teens, but not knowing that's your target demographic. Yeah, and it's what's funny, and I didn't know this until I did the pop episode, the 90s pop episodes of, of Speed of Sound. You know, back in the 90s, Hanson was offered this big Disney concert special. And as you say, they rejected it. They said, oh, we don't want to play for those Disney audience, Disney, the Disney Channel audience. Um, and so the Disney Channel was like, well, if you don't want to do it, the Backstreet Boys want to do it. We're going to give it to them. And so in the end, they gave it to the Backstreet Boys. What I did not know until I interviewed Johnny Wright a few weeks ago for this podcast was that the Backstreet Boys just 10 days before the concert special was supposed to be taped, they backed out as well and said, oh, we don't want to do the Disney Channel. That's too young for us. And so in the end, that concert special slot went to a brand new group called NSYNC. And NSYNC did it because they weren't even big yet. NSYNC did it. And that's what caused NSYNC to blow up in America. So it was a very powerful tool, that Disney Channel special. Uh, but but both Hanson and the Backstreet Boys thought they were too cool to do it. Yeah, and Donna Wright told me that same story. It was like whatever Backstreet turned down, instant get. Like, hey, y'all don't want to do this. There's another group that'd be willing to do it. Yeah, I guess in the end, really, instant really became the bigger group. You know, by the by the end of the whole of that whole era. Mm, you know, in the Disney Channel, they ran those specials. I remember like maybe two or three times a day, and that equal your album sales skyrocketing now the one british group who i felt was right there at the cusp of having u.s success but they just didn't have that breakout hit in america was five. Oh, i liked five yeah they were good yeah because i actually heard that bye 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 was originally for them but they passed oh, yeah. and that's how NC so they were, and they had a little bit more of an r&b feel five yeah, their was image good. wasn't poppy like Take That. They were more like, I don't know if you are familiar with this UK arm, not R&B, pop group out of the 90s, E17. Of course, yeah. They, they had more of an E17 vibe to them. Yeah, yeah. And I had a chance um, to interview um, KG. He was a member of this 90s British R&B group, Eminate. They did a cover of Happy by Surface. They were signed to the UK division of Columbia. And we were talking about how it's a difference when you're at from another country and you're trying to market yourself to the U.S. And I think sometimes the execs in the other countries don't get that it's a different animal trying to market and act in America like you would in your home country. Would you agree? Yeah, well, American market's a very different market than the U.K. market. Maybe you know, it still is. You know, there's still all these massive hits in the U.K. that we never hear over here. You know, there's um, there's they have like their own kinds of rap over there and stuff that are homegrown and very local, but you know, really massive and generally doesn't travel that well to over here. Mm -hmm. Now, when you first saw Jonas Brothers, did you think Hanson Part Two, or were there a difference between Hanson and Jonas Jonas Brothers? Well, when I first heard a recording of Nick Jonas singing, the first thing that caught my ear was how much he sounded at that stage of his life like Taylor Hansen. And I was very curious about that sound. And so I met him and he said he had brothers and I thought, oh, brothers, I know how to make a record with brothers, you know? So we made that first Jonas Brothers record, It's About Time on Columbia. And they had their first big uh, top 10 hit on TRL. 
from that album, which was a song called Mandy that they wrote by themselves, which was pretty impressive. I remember they first sang me that song on a street corner um, in Manhattan near a parking garage where they were gonna go get in their car and go back to New Jersey. And they said, we, we wrote a song, you wanna hear it? I said, sure. And they just sang it a cappella to me on the street. And I was like, wow, that's great. You gotta record that. And so, uh, you know, with, with, with the Jonas Brothers, you could see that they had the same songwriting ability, singing ability, star power that those Hanson guys had. Yeah, and do you think like with Hanson and Jonas Brothers, they pretty much were the opposite of the phenomenon that was New Kids on the Block because New Kids on the Block, they had the R&B sounds of New Edition with the pop look and I had a chance to interview Danny Wood from New Kids and Maurice Starr and the whole thing was let's take what New Edition did and let's go pop with it. But I felt New Kids was an R&B group at the heart that just happened to go pop. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that part of that was Maurice Starr's revenge, you know. He had put together, not didn't put together, he, he had put it, produced the first records by New, by New Edition. And then they had a business disagreement and New Edition left him. And I think he wanted to just sort of say, oh, okay, you guys, you guys think that, uh, you know, you're so great, leave me, I'm going to do something bigger than you. And so he put together uh, the new kids on the block and, you know, it was, it was bigger. Um, you know, I think that, you know, clearly, yet, you know, they were a poppier group than new edition. Although look, I love, I much prefer new edition. Candy girl is really one of the great records of the eighties in my opinion. You know, mm -hmm. I remember when I first heard candy girl, I was like, wow, this is so good. You know, this, this is like the best kid record I've heard since the Jackson five. Right, but it's amazing to think about New Edition and how they were able to have success as a group and all six branch off to have solo success and then come back and have more success because nobody could have predicted how big of a solo superstar Bobby Brown would become and also BBD and Michael Bivens yeah. discovering Boys to Men. Absolutely, yeah. No, well, yeah, BBD was, was crucial, a crucial link in that chain that led to Boys to Men. You know, for sure. If you remember, even on that first Boys to Men record, they say Boys to Men, ABC, BBD, you know, because they were all part of that same scene. So what was your take on, at this time, back up a little bit. So 87 comes out and there was a record by an artist by the name of Key Sweat, Make It Last Forever. And it was the first time where you had hip hop and R&B merging, because before that, they were two totally separate sounds. But a young producer by the name of Teddy Riley managed to take R&B and hip hop together and fuse it to be known as New Jack Swing. So what was your take on Teddy Riley and his innovation and how he changed music? Oh, it, it definitely changed it. Obviously those Bobby Brown records did the same thing as well. As the, and of course the Keith Sweat record that I remember the most was I, I Want Her, which was an amazing record. Um, but uh, I think that it was an exciting fusion and it kind of helped keep R&B music current and, make, and keep it cool. Uh, what people don't know to this day is that we, not we, not we, but people around Hanson, when they first came to my attention, people around Hanson were trying to say to them that they should get Teddy Riley to produce them. And so there was a chance, maybe if Hanson had signed with a different A&R guy, there was a chance that they could have made a very different kind of record where like Teddy Riley produced it. And it was like more of a pop R&B record. Um, I think some other labels that were looking to sign them were trying to push them in that direction. And I thought that was just the wrong direction. But yeah, I did I, love that. 
I, I love the new Jack Swing stuff. It was great. You know, it was a great period for R&B music. And Bobby Brown really went and became a superstar, you know, which was, which was an incredible thing. And as you say, the BBD guys and Johnny Gill and all those guys became big hits. Ralph, Ralph Tresvant became a big hit. They all did. It was a pretty amazing group. Right. And then also at the same time, you have a movement out of Atlanta with LaFace Records with L.A. and Babyface and everything that came out of there from TLC to Usher and so on and so forth. And what's going on now with Ludacris, T.I., everything that come out of Atlanta, did you expect as the industry man, once you saw everything that was coming out of Atlanta, that Atlanta would have staying power? No, you know, a lot of times those scenes are because there's a couple of really talented people in a certain place and they make a scene, you know. But Atlanta has definitely had staying power for the last, you know, 25 years or more as one of the real capitals of music. So, you know, clearly it's more than just a couple of talented people. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the industry was living half the hog when Napster started to come in and didn't recognize that the tide was shifting and that, we need to get on this because digital is coming. We can't rely on people going to the record store and paying $20 for a CD anymore. You know, when, when Napster hit, like in 1999 and 2000, those were the very best years financially in the history of the music business. So really, the internet, Napster, right, came at exactly the worst time possible because things were so good that in the industry, no one wanted to change a thing, right? It was, let's keep this the way it is. This is amazing, right? If the record business was maybe going through some tough times at that moment, maybe they would have been open to some change. To, let's try to shake this up, do things a little differently. Let's, let's look at Napster. Let's look at the internet and see how we can use this. But they were like, no way, this is, this is too good to mess up. You know, let's just keep going the way we are. Let's, let's shut this thing down. Let's shut this internet thing down. And so really the music industry was not uh, prepared for the tsunami that overwhelmed it in the wake of Napster. And that, and that was to the music industry's discredit. And then of course, by the time Apple came with the iTunes store, it was almost like a godsend for the music business. At least we have some way to monetize music on the internet. Although what people forget is that uh, the music industry saved Apple as much as Apple saved the music industry. You know, Apple was not the Apple that we know today in, you know, 2001 and 2002. And the, I, the iPod, you know, would never have been a success the way it was without the iTunes store. And the iTunes store, of course, never could have gotten off the ground without the cooperation of the music companies. So really, the music industry helped make Apple what it became. And people forget that because people th think it just went the other way and that somehow that Apple saved the music industry. Right, because I remember this was back in the heyday of when you actually had to physically go in and buy a tape or a CD and you would pay, let's say, maybe ten ninety nine for a cassette and nineteen ninety nine for a CD. And you know, when NSYNC put out No Strings Attached, it sold over 2 million copies first week. Best-selling record, first week sales up until, I think it was Adele's 25. And you look at that and you say, now I could just go to a streaming service, download, listen to it, and just think about how with the labels now, 
it's pretty much almost like a relationship where if you're an artist, you already got a buzz, and I just need promotion, distribution, use it for that aspect because I kind of see how when Prince was discussing about own your masters, ownership, and just being your own boss, and you're kind of seeing how it, the flourishing of that now to where it's internet, do you think that we'll see more of a symbiotic relationship between artists and labels and not like how it once was where you signed to a label and we do all the stuff, but the deal is very much almost 50-50 or kind of sort of going towards label and artist favor? I think it's already changed. I think that those old kind of record deals are a thing of the past and artists have more rights now. The, the deals are shorter. The royalties are higher or sometimes it's even a, a, a profit split and people get their masters back a lot quicker. In the olden days, some of these old record contracts, people never got their masters back, you know? Um, and, and most artists now have get, get their masters to revert at some point and have more a better, a better royalty and a shorter deal. Um, you know, in the old days, you'd have like seven album deals. And that sounds exciting. You know, I got signed by Columbia Records, seven album deal. But that doesn't mean that the Columbia Records has committed to making seven albums with you. It just means that Columbia Records has the right to make seven albums with you if they feel like it, meaning you can't leave if you're successful until after you've delivered seven albums. So I think people sometimes think about those old deals like, oh, it sounds so great, seven albums, man. But no, it, it's really just, you know, it's, it, it's actually terrible. You know, you wish it was three albums if you were successful, you know. Mm. Uh, so you can get out of there quicker and get a, a new deal for a much higher uh, price. Now with those old deals, were greatest hits and Christmas albums excluded from the seven album deal because they were considered one-off? Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. Sometimes the deal would say plus, a, it would say plus a, uh, a greatest hits album. Sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes it'd be a negotiation at that point. If anybody gets to the point where they're making their greatest hits album, they probably had some success. So they have some leverage, you know. Mm. Because, you know, even, even if you're signed to a, a, a deal with a label, most of those deals got renegotiated if the artist was successful. Because even if you have an artist for seven albums, you can't make somebody go into the studio and make a record, right? So somebody is really successful, they'll come back to the label and say, hey, we want a better deal now because we were so successful. Right, and how do you balance, you know, you have an artist that is very self-contained, I want to do everything my way and not really have a lot of label interference to where you're like, oh, we're going to send someone to make sure that you're doing the record the way that we want it and have a rough cut turned in by this and a deadline by this time so that we can have your album out by fourth quarter. I mean, look, these days, I think artists just have a lot more autonomy. It's so much easier to just make records in your bedroom these days, you know, than, than it used to be. It used to be that like the artists literally couldn't make records without the help of the label. The label had to put up the money to get a studio, a good studio to make a competitive record, and a good engineer, and a good producer, and even good musicians, right? Like you had to bring in really good, if, if, the, if it wasn't a self-contained band, you had to bring in the best musicians. Like on those Hanson records, we have the best musicians in LA playing on those records. And same thing, Joss Stone, you know, we have the greatest soul musicians in Miami playing on those Joss Stone records. But these days, you know, people are programming stuff in their bedroom. You know, and you don't need any musicians and you don't need any studio and you don't need any of that. So like 
the power dynamic has shifted quite significantly. Right, and I'm sure artists are glad about technology and that they don't need to have to go into a studio and have to pay back that money that was in your advance to where it's like, hey, if I don't get this song out by a certain time, it's coming out of my pocket because I'm only getting X amount of cents on a record plus the points. And then by the time all that gets added up and everybody gets their cut, I'm only left with this much money. And if you're in a group, you got to split it X amount of ways depending on your group members. Yeah, look, that was the situation with the Baja men who we had uh, at S-Curve 20 years ago with Who Let the Dogs Out. There were nine people in that group. You know, they made a lot of money, the Baja men, but they had to split it nine ways. That's hard. Wow. And what led you to find S-Curve? S-Curve was kind of an accident. Um, I was, uh, I, ha I made the record Who Let the Dogs Out with a friend of mine, Mike Mangini, and, and we... I thought I was going to do it through uh, uh, the Warner Music Group. I was going to start my own little imprint over there, uh, but they hated the record. So I, they hated it so much that I decided not to sign the deal with them. And I, I thought, well, I better just start my own label to put this record out. So really, Escort Records, which has now been around for 20 years, started for the sole purpose of putting out Who Let the Dogs Out, because the, the London record label, which was part of Warner, didn't want to put it out. Wow, who would have thunk it? And it became a big hit, won a Grammy. And then I was reading Clive Davis's um, memoir. He was talking about Ace of Base and how Ace of Base was originally a one album deal. And they just took the Happy People album that was released overseas, rebranded it as the sign in the US. It exploded and the sign was a big hit here in the US. Yeah, yeah, that was, well, that was the biggest, the biggest record. The sign was the biggest record in 1994. And that was really the beginning of that Swedish production sound that really came to full fruition with Max Martin. And Dennis and the Pop. And all that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Dennis Pop was like the originator of that whole scene. Mm. Uh, he unfortunately died in the late 90s of cancer, but mm. he was the mentor of Max Martin. Yeah, because I remember, you know, like right around the same time when Backstreet and NSYNC was breaking here in America, you know, Robin was coming over here in America and exploding with, do you know what it takes? And then she decided, I don't want to be teen pop and I want to go in a totally different direction, more rock. Kind of similar to Pink when she first signed to La Face was more R&B and decided to go more rock later on. Absolutely. I remember Pink, Pink once opened for the Baja Men at a radio show in Texas, which I thought was pretty wild. Uh, they were bigger than she was at that point. But yeah, Rob, Rob, I'll tell you a funny thing, you know, Robin, one of her first hits, you'll remember, was Show Me Love. And I, was, I always thought that was funny that both Robin and Robin S had as their first hits a song called Show Me Love within a couple years of each other. So there's mm -hmm. Robin's Show Me Love and there's Robin S's Show Me Love, and they were both hits. So what do you think it was about that late 90s, early 2000s pop sound that is still resonating to this day, you know, for people of my generation who grew up with it and younger, because I was teaching for a bit before I went with my current day job. And I had a kid wear a t-shirt that had the instinct US debut album cover. And I was like, cool shirt. I was like, do you know who that is? And she was like, no. I was like, that's the group Justin Timberlake was in before he went solo. And she was like, oh. I think whenever you have music that has great songs, you have the potential of 
making something that's lasting and that people will like for many years. I think that's why, you know, the Beatles are still, you know, revered because the songs were really good. You know, that's why Motown lasted as long as it did because the songs are good. It, it, it all comes down to the songs in the end. Yeah. You could have all the flash, all the like up-to-date beats, production style, and that could help you have a hit right now. But if you want to last, if you want your music to last for a really long time, it's about the songs in the end. Right, I agree. Motown, great American songbook. I had a chance to go see Motown the Musical about three years ago in Salt Lake City, Utah, my wife and I. And actually, I was out, we were outside about to go back to the vehicle, and I noticed this man, everybody was crowding around him, taking pictures. And I was like, that's that's Lamont Dozier. And she was like, who? I was like, that's Lamont Dozier, the man that wrote pretty much all of those songs that we saw in there and just got a chance to talk to him and just say like, were y'all paying attention to what was going on in Stacks as opposed to what y'all were doing in Detroit? And it was just a cool conversation to see how both of those labels, while R&B, both had pop appeal while Stax was unadulterated R&B and it crossed over on his own, especially after Otis Redding did the Monterey Pop Festival. Yeah, I, I, worked, I worked with Lamont Dozier on the uh, second Joss Stone album. He co-wrote a song on that album called Spoiled, which was one of the biggest hits on that album. I got to know him a little bit. He was a good, really, I mean, he's, he continued to be a great songwriter for many, many years. You know, we think of Lamont Dozier in the 60s with Motown, but he had his own big hits in the 70s, like trying to hold on to my woman and his own stuff. In fact, I remember when uh, when we had him work with Joss Stone, I knew that I didn't want her to do some like 60s sounding thing, like some 60s Motown sounding song. Um, and so I said to Lamont Dozier, when we brought him in to work with Joss, I said, give me trying to hold on to my woman. Don't give me sugar pie honey bunch. You know, and he did. He gave me a song that was very much in the vein of his great 70s solo work. And, and we recorded that with Joss. Right. And I mentioned Wham earlier. Now, Wham was already huge in the UK with the Fantastic album and had Wham rap and Bad Boys, Club Tropicana, and then comes Make It Big. And that launched them as successful stars here in the US. And then by this point, George Michael was ready to say, hey, I wanna show people I'm more than just a teeny bopper. And he goes and put out an album called Faith. And that was a crossover album, was the first number one album by a white artist on the R&B charts. He got airplay on MTV, BET, and for Columbia, it was a win-win because we can work him amongst different genres and demographics without having to spend a whole lot of money. You know, George Michael always had R&B roots. You know, one of the things that, that, you know, people forget about Wham is that their first hit, or first or second hit, I don't remember if it was before or after Young Guns, but um, they, one of their first two hits was Wham Rap, which was their attempt to do rap. And I don't know that their version of rap was that good, but the point was they had their ear to that music, even as early as like 1982. Um, they were listening to rap and they wanted to do that. So it's clear that George Michael had an authentic affection for American R&B from the beginning. Mm -hmm. A lot of those UK acts have love and respect for R&B, like you mentioned, George Michael, Boy George, Culture Club, Spandau Ballet, Phil Collins, Sam Smith, Adele. They just eat, sleep, and breathe U.S. R&B. And the whole Northern Soul movement, it was just their homage to Motown, really. 
Yeah, Northern Soul Music is like one of the craziest things ever, you know, like it's this basically at the end of the 60s, um, you know, R&B music started to become funkier, less fast. Um, and there were people who just wanted that old kind of music from the 60s to keep going. So they just started these clubs, you know, around England and they'd play old soul songs. But of course, after a while, you know, you, you get tired of the same old songs. So those people started to like dig into the crates and, you know, go around and try to find more and more old soul records that hadn't become famous yet, you know, and they would just keep. So as the years went by, there were more and more old soul songs being introduced to the Northern soul community so that the old 60s soul songs that they would be listening to in a Northern soul club in 1978 were different than the ones they were listening to in a Northern Soul Club in 1973. Even though they were all old songs from the 60s, they were, they were like new old songs. And it's an amazing thing that they really unearthed, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of amazing soul records that had not managed to become big hits in their day. You know, records like There's a Ghost in My House by R. Dean Taylor or Do I Love You, Yes I Do by Frank Wilson. You know, like these records that no one had ever heard when they came out, but then all of a sudden they became big Northern soul songs. And that's how we know them today, if we know them at all. Right, and the one thing about UK R&B was that before Loose Ends and Five Star became success over here in America, they were played over in the UK, but at this time, UK R&B wasn't commercially available on Capital Radio or BBC One. You had to listen to Pirate Radio, and it wasn't until 1990 when Kiss FM came about that UK music lovers had to hear, got to hear R&B on a commercial scale, and then that led to everything that came out of the UK R&B wise. Which why I was so happy once Craig David exploded over here in America with the Born to Do It album. And Soul to Soul was even before yeah, Craig David. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know the Northern Soul scene had a real impact on on British pop. You know, in the eighties, I would say especially. Um, first of all, Kevin Rowland from Dexys Midnight Runners was a big Northern Soul fanatic. And their first album is just like, it's almost like an, a modern attempt to make a Northern Soul record. And he even covered on some of those first Dexys Midnight Runners albums, songs that were Northern Soul classics, you know, like One Way Love by the Drifters, that kind of stuff. And, um, and who else though? There, was, there were other people who also kind of really, Elvis Costello certainly also like understood Northern Soul and wanted to incorporate it. In some ways, the biggest commercial success that came out of Northern Soul music was the, were the records that Stock Aiken and Waterman made in the 80s um, on their PWL label. Mm -hmm. Because Pete Walker, massive Northern Soul DJ, you know, one of the biggest Northern Soul DJs in the world. And he then turned his attention into making new records that would capture that energy of those Motown records in the 60s. And he didn't make them sound like Motown records. He made them sound like modern 80s records. But that what he was going for was that excitement and that the same kind of groove that Northern Soul was built on. And that's where all those records like Rick Astley, Never Gonna Give You Up, or um, Dead or Alive, You Spin Me Around Like a Record, or the early Kylie Minogue records, uh, the early Banana Ram, some of those Banana Rama records, um, yeah, those were all PWL records, mm -hmm. and and they were very influenced by Northern Soul 
yeah, your take on Southern Soul. That's how I came up on Betty Wright. I'm originally from North Carolina. So the, doing the cookouts and backyard gatherings with family, I would hear her, Millie Jackson, Clarence Carter, Roy C., Luther Ingram. And it's near and dear to me because coming from that region, that's all I heard growing up. Yeah, when we made the first Joss Stone album, you know, there was a lot of ways we could go with that. I wanted her to work with authentic R&B musicians, people who really had like made the great records because she had that voice and she had the love of the music already. You know, before she met me, she loved that music. Um, you know, when her, her audition for S-Curve in 19, sorry, not in 2002, was her singing uh, Midnight Train to Georgia in our studio. And she just killed it. She was amazing. So I, I wanted her to work with great R&B musicians. So we, you know, we did something that was a little left field, right? Most people would have gone to the great Motown musicians or the great Stax musicians or even the great Philadelphia musicians. And we did something a little more original. You know, we took her down to Miami and we had her work with the musicians who all played on all those Alston and TK records, you know, the Betty Wright records and the, um, the, Lattimore records and Timmy Thomas records and Little Beaver records and all that stuff. And that gave it a really good twist, the album, you know, because it didn't just sound like the hundredth time somebody was trying to make a Motown record or the hundredth time somebody was trying to make a Memphis soul record. Like we made a Miami soul record with Joss Stone. Right. And that was pretty cool. Right. You mentioned Miami and Memphis and Philly, all those places in Seoul. But I got to give mention to a little studio down in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, by the name of Fame and the Swampers. I mean, they play a big impact on soul music as well. Yeah, um, Muscle Shoals was definitely like a, ma a major studio. You know, Atlantic, after their relationship with Stax, went south. They moved most of their Southern stuff to Muscle Shoals and had some big hits like, you know, um, with, so, with so many incredible artists, Clarence Carter and all kinds of people. Um, and, you know, there were some great producers there like Rick Hall, who produced everything from Clarence Carter uh, to the Osmonds, to Paul Anka, you know, to Matt Davis. You know, it was, there was a, that, was a, that was a serious hit factory down there. Yeah, in and I also got to throw in um, Malico Records out of, uh, I believe, Jackson, Mississippi, an another label. If you're from the South, you know Malico Records because your grandma probably has some gospel records from Malico in her collection or blues records from Malico. Their, their biggest pop hit was uh, Dorothy Moore, Misty Blue, which is okay. a pretty great record. Wow, I did not know that was that was off of Malico. Now, as your time as an exec, were there some artists that you had a chance to sign but whiffed on? I don't think I ever whiffed on anybody, to be honest. I think that I had some artists that I would like to have signed, but couldn't convince the major labels that I worked out to let me sign. And those and some of those were very big artists, and it's sad. Uh, but not sad, because I think in life, like, you know, you know, you, if you're good at what you do, you get more shots, ultimately, and you, so you can, you can miss one, and you could get the next one, you know, um, when I was at Atlantic Records, I really wanted to sign Alanis Morissette, and they wouldn't let me, and that was oh, just man. wrong, and they also wouldn't let me sign The Prodigy, who also had a number one album in the 90s, wow. so, you know, that, that's that's why I left that label because I, I didn't have the support, as I said earlier in the thing. Um, and when you can't like sign people of that caliber, you know you should go do something else. 
So. Yeah, because it, it made me think about how Aretha Franklin, she was originally signed to Columbia, and they totally didn't know what to do with her. But once she left Columbia and got hooked up with Ahmed Edegram and Jerry Wexler over at Atlantic, they figured out, hey, we're going to know how to market her. We know what her sound is. And that really took over the top. Yeah, she went from being, you know, making pop records to making like gospel influenced soul records. That was Jerry Wexler's, you know, insight that he should put her back in the church, except with secular lyrics. Mm. Now, what led you to launch the Speed of Sound podcast? You know, it's funny, actually. I, it wasn't even my idea. Um, I was having, I made a record last year with uh, the OJs. It was actually produced by Betty Wright and me and Michael Mangini. And in fact, it was the last album produced by Betty Wright before she passed away. And it's an amazing record. And I recommend people to go out and hear it. It's called The Last Word. And I was having dinner with the OJs and some other people were out with us for this dinner. And I was just telling stories about pop music history like we're talking about right here on this podcast. And one of the people at the dinner was a podcast producer for iHeart. And she heard me just telling these stories. And after the dinner, she said, well, you should have a podcast. And I said, okay, let's do it. You know, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to help me get a podcast deal, I'd be happy to do that. So uh, we got a podcast deal with iHeart and made Speed of Sound. And it's been just really one of the most fulfilling things that I've done professionally in a very long time. I've, I've loved doing it. Um, it's a lot of work. Every time I do an episode, it's like I'm writing a 20 page term paper, you know? So I feel every week when I was doing it during the season of Speed of Sound, every week I felt like I was a college student on finals week, you know? And I was pulling all nighters. Like I think, I think every single episode of Speed of Sound is associated with at least one all nighter that I pulled to write that episode. Uh, Cause it, it, it takes a long time to do an episode. And uh, it's so, a great show. Great show. If you're a music lover like myself and love the history and the backstories, it's a show that I highly recommend. Well, you know, it takes a lot of research. It, you know, it's a, it's a scripted show. So I'm really doing a lot of research and then, you know, presenting it in a scripted fashion. Every, you know, as you know, every episode, I'll try to have like one or two interviews, but the interviews are only part of it. A lot of it is just really telling the story and also presenting little snippets of music to illustrate what I'm talking about. And we have a lot of fun, you know, we're finding all kinds of weird things. We find old commercials and old movie trailers and all kinds of stuff to help, uh, you know, illustrate the time that we're talking about. And, uh, you know, I look forward to doing some more episodes and I have lots of ideas and I, yeah, if anybody's interested in pop music history, it's a good podcast to, to give a listen to. Yeah, it's available on all streaming platforms, season one, just rap, so you can definitely binge listen and really know your music history and enjoy it. Now, before we close this interview, do you have any shout outs you want to give before we conclude and also give your social media if people want to get in contact with you? Oh, well, first of all, if you want to follow me on social media, the best way to do it is on Twitter. And my name is Stevie G Pro on Twitter. And uh, I'm happy to engage with people on Twitter if they reach out to me and uh, so please, please do. And shout outs, you know, I got to just, my shout outs are going to be to two people who are not with us anymore. You know, two of the towering talents in the history of S-Curve uh, we lost this year. Uh, first of all, we lost uh, Adam Schlesinger from the Fountains of Wayne to COVID. And he, of course, uh, came into S-Curve in the early days of the label 
and uh, was uh, from the group Fountains of Wayne, who had the big, big hit, Stacy's Mom. And he was a towering figure in the music business. He uh, was nominated for an Oscar for writing the song, That Thing You Do, from the movie, That Thing You Do. And uh, he was just great. And he worked with a lot of our artists. And so uh, he's up there somewhere and my shout out is to him. And then my other shout out is of course, to Betty Wright, who uh, sadly we lost to cancer uh, this past spring. And she was one of the other towering talents in the history of S-Curve. Uh, worked with so many of our artists from Joss Stone to Diane Birch to the OJs and even more. We even put out a great Betty Wright album in 2011 called uh, Betty Wright the Movie and it was credited to Betty Wright and the Roots. Great record to check out. It was nominated for two Grammys that record and it's a fabulous fabulous record. It's actually the last album that Betty Wright made as an artist and so uh, you know she was very integral part of the S-Curve family and we miss her every day and uh, so those are my shout outs. Yeah and I didn't know about the the lead singer found the way wrote that thing you do in that soundtrack even though it was fictional and the artists are fictional great pop records my world my the i can't recall the name of the record your world that record for me it sounded almost like you were listening to a herb alfred and tijuana brass record yeah mr downtown mm, yeah. um the, the, the slow record the diane lane record yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's great about that record is that, you know, they got it so right, you know. That record, you know, that show, I guess, the, you know, that movie takes place like in 1964, 65. And they're on that label and they're out there on a package show with other people on the label. But what's kind of funny is that the other people on the label are a little bit over the hill, you know. They, those songs don't sound like post-Beatles songs, right? Those songs sound like pre-Beatles songs and they, they got that so right that there would be these artists on the label who were like still on the label and still trying to have hits but their music was a, a minute out of date it was like the, you know that we assume that those songs that they're playing on that on that tour and that are on the soundtrack are songs that they did like two years earlier you know that they're playing their their hits from like two years earlier and of course we listen to all that stuff today like the song that thing you do or the other songs that were performed in the movie by the other artists. And it all just sounds like a cool old pop, you know? But if you had, if that had not been fiction, right? If that was real, and if it had been 1965 and they were on that package tour, you would have got that those were like the oldies, you know, on the tour with, with the wonders. Um, and so it was, it was very, very smart. Everything about that, that movie was so smart. Um, they really got it right in, in ways that even most people wouldn't notice. Like at the end of the movie, there's that guy who's like the sort of the musical talent in the band. Jimmy was his name. And he's the one who quits because he doesn't want to make that pop record that, that the label wants him to make after they have the hit single. And if you, at the end of the movie, they have a little, those little blurbs on the screen of what became of the guys in the band. And that guy, Jimmy, they say about him, he had formed another group who had three gold albums on the Playtone label, which was the label the Wonders were on. Now that's such a smart comment, right? And most people wouldn't even notice. But the reason it's smart is because even though he quit the Wonders who were on Playtone records, obviously 
he couldn't get out of the contract. They still had him under contract. So he forms this other group and he's still on Playtone Records. And that's where he has his big hits with his later group. But he didn't have that freedom because it's in the 60s, those contracts were so one way. He didn't have the freedom to go to some other label and have a career. He was still on Playtone, even though he hated them. And I thought that was a very smart touch in the movie. Definitely a great movie. I highly recommend it. Shout out to Tom Hanks, Tom Everett Scott, Liv Tyler, um, Steve Zahn, Charlize Theron was actually in that movie before she became a huge star. Definitely a great movie. What did she play in that movie? I think she played Tom Everett Scott's girlfriend, Tina. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you can catch this interview with Steve Greenberg along with every past episode of Beyond the Album Cover on all major streaming platforms and on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash J5. Ladies and gentlemen, thank Mr. Steve Greenberg for coming on, founder of Curve Records, former head of A&R at Mercury, host of the podcast Speed of Sound, which you can find on all major streaming platforms. Looking forward to season two when it drops. And thank you once again, Mr. Greenberg, for coming on. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a great podcast. Keep doing it. Thank you.